Thank you all for showing up tonight. We're going to be continuing the idea on the issue of fascism, what it is, the relationship between what happened January 6th in Washington, and our party's analysis that that's part of a growth of a fascist movement, that it was not a riot of individuals, but that it was planned. And that's a party analysis that we're presenting now. If anybody could give another analysis, that would be great. But that's the way we're seeing it. So we have three sections for tonight, the first being on Huey Long, the second being on the America First Committee, and the third being on the Bitcoin donation that was made prior to the January 6th coup that funded far-right groups. So brief point I want to make. This comes from a bourgeois historical journal. So when it says Long's scheme has certain advantages over the communist program, that is because it's not coming from any sort of socialist perspective. Comrade is going to be doing the reading tonight, so you can begin with Section 1. Comrade, go ahead. Section 1 is an excerpt from Huey Long and the Communists from the Journal of Louisiana Architecture and Association by Edward F. Haas. On February 23, 1934, Senator Huey Pierce Long of Louisiana unveiled a share wealth, a plan that he believed would make him President of the United States. Long's scheme called for the confiscation of all personal fortunes that exceeded $5 million and an income tax on annual earnings above $1 million. The government would use this revenue to provide each American household, quote, enough for a home, an automobile, a radio, and the ordinary conveniences. The plan also included an annual income of $2,000 for each family. A monthly pension of $30 later changed to an adequate pension for the elderly and a guaranteed college education for capable youngsters. Long additionally sought bonuses for veterans, a shorter working year with a 30-hour week. The harshest foes of Long's proposal, however, were not conservatives, but those who revered the revolutionary philosophy of Karl Marx and the, quote, oriental fanatic Lenin, if that was not of the besmirched Trotsky, American communist. The leading critics were Cinder Garland and Alexander Bittleman, veteran American communists. Communist opposition to share our wealth was understandable. The communists believed that the Great Depression had undermined American faith in capitalism and gained new backers for their cause. In the New York gubernatorial race of 1934, for example, communist ballots numbered more than 41,000. Earlier, the count had only been 25,000. Long strength, however, so increasing. In January 1935, the Share Our Wealth Society boastfully claimed 7,500,000 members. The communists feared the Kingfishers program, a radical step beyond Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, would divert support away from their party. Long had indeed asserted as much. In Huey Long's opinion, it was either Share Our Wealth in America or, quote, communism. Long's scheme had certain advantages over the capitalist program. Although both plans promised a better life, share our wealth would avoid violent revolution and preserve private property, including the holdings of, quote, Wall Street magnates, end quote. The Kingfish remarked that it would be one of the unfortunate effects of my programs. I'd cut their nails and file their teeth and let them live. Despite these whimsical misgivings, Long insisted that his plan was the only stopgap to communism. 
On March 8, 1935, he advised the implementation of his program, quote, within the next five years or communism will be upon us. Let's pause right there and stop for questions. I'm going to give a little introduction on why this is being done, this reading. Huey Long was the first American populist in the modern time in this country. He was considered one of the first, what we would call, precursors to a fascist leader in this country. And that's why this is being read now, to show that the reason we had this movement going on was to stop people from going to communism, which in the 1930s after the Depression, during the Depression period, the economy, they were doing that. Huey Long is considered in Louisiana the first in many, many years of a populist message, very similar to Trump. Huey Long sold himself as someone who came from the working class. He was not working class, but he sold his message that he was from the working class and that he was there for the average person. That's why he talked about giving them money every year. There is an Asian-American candidate running for New York City mayor who has the same message. Andrew Yang. So it's an old message. Trump supporters said that he was representing them when they attacked the Capitol, his people. They said he is their president, that he represents their interests. I just want to show you the similarity. Thank you. How could the Share the Wealth program tax or confiscate wealth above a certain amount but still leave the Wall Street bankers and all their wealth, which is a lot, still intact? The program that Huey Long is describing here, it doesn't ultimately touch the relations of production because capital is a social relation as well as being money and wealth. So it would be taxing their wealth, but it would not be removing their control over the means of production. I think it's also important to mention at the same time that Huey Long was here that there was also Smudley Butler and the business plot, and that it's important to recognize that this populism that Huey Long and Smudley Butler gained notoriety from are some of the tools that American fascists use. There's been a lot of talk about how Trump is the incompetent fascist, and that after the right becomes organized in the coming years that the competent fascists will show up. And so Huey Long, to my understanding, is the competent fascist. Things like share our wealth, a guaranteed income, enough for a home, an automobile, a radio, all of this without changing class relations while maintaining the capitalist infrastructure. So this is just sort of a historical parallel for how fascism could potentially manifest today. I just wanted to express my surprise being someone who was born and lived for most of my younger years in Mississippi. I heard a lot about Huey Long as a good politician and as a good person. I'm surprised as I'm reading this to learn that this is how he operated and learn that he is, quote, the competent fascist. It was kind of a change in perspective for me from considering I was from somewhere very close to him. In the journal, there's a lot of examples of the racism of Huey Long. And he says something to the effect of when black people were trying to be able to vote in Louisiana, 
do something in regards to that, but he said something to the effect that black people aren't intelligent enough to be able to vote because they won't know which state they're born in. So those are the kinds of sentiments that people like Huey Long were able to rile up in his time. So you can continue with the reading and stop before Section 2, comrade. Go ahead. Cinder Garland claimed that Long's sweet words about sharing the wealth concealed a ruthless anti-labor program. Workers of the Mississippi River Bridge, for example, received only 30 cents per hour, although the National Recovery Administration called for hourly wages of 40 cents, arguing that the many workers on state construction jobs received as little as 10 cents an hour Garland wrote that Louisiana's new, quote, bridges and highways were monuments of labor peonage. Long, according to the communist, told Jack Ruth, president of the New Orleans Building Trades Council, quote, the prevailing wage in the state is the lowest wage we can get men to work for, end quote. Garland added that Governor Long had abandoned striking workers in Louisiana, but in 1929, he did offer to use the militia to subdue striking New Orleans streetcar workers. His pliant legislature, furthermore, defeated an eight-hour bill for women, a child labor measure and a prevailing wage law that Long had endorsed. The communists, however, did not stop with charges of corruption, racism, and abuses of powers. Garland portrayed Long as a capitalist lackey who betrayed the masses. He tied the Louisiana Politico to Harvey Couch, the president of the Arkansas and Texas Railroad, and Rudolf Hecht, the president of Hiberta National Bank in New Orleans, and president of the American Bankers Association, as well as Louisiana Fruit and Steamship Company. According to Garland, these men, quote, were the most powerful and reactionary section of the Louisiana capitalist class, end quote, were Long's major financial backers. Long, the communists maintained, ably represented them and also quote the Wall Street bankers with whom they are linked. Garland further alleged that Long was a hiring of the Rockefeller-controlled Chase National Bank of New York. Any more comments right now or questions about what we've just read? When we talk about fascism, we talk a lot about that ideology using scapegoats. So like with Trump, we have scapegoatism with illegal immigrants. And with Nazism, we have the Jews. Do we have a good example of Huey Long's scapegoats that they used back then? There was a scapegoat at that time. It was the communists. They were the scapegoat. The reason why he did what he was doing, he kept saying over and over again, if I don't do this, if we don't have this guaranteed income, then the communists will take over and we'll be living under communism. The scapegoat was not an ethnic group, but a political group. Thank you. What specifically makes Huey Long a fascist? So I'm not very familiar with him, but I guess there have been racist and anti-labor politicians before, and they're not necessarily a fascist. What's different about him? The characteristic of a fascist, all of them, it's the cult of personality. It's strange that they accuse the communist of the cult of personality when it's always been the fascist. It's always around one man, whether it's Hitler, whether it's Mussolini, Franco in Spain, long in the United States, Trump. Trump is a perfect example. This idolization that the individual will save us from our enemies. 
That's a real strong characteristic of every single one. The other thing that I thought a perfect example of is it is that he is trying to give socialist inspired in the same way that I feel like the Nazis in Germany ripped off kind of like air quote socialist programs like giving people a universal basic wage or something like that without changing the relations of the workers to the means of production and changing the relationship of the class within the society, you are just enabling the bourgeois to maintain power in a reactionary way at the expense of the proletariat. I think we'll give you money. He's not really doing anything for the workers other than making them dependent by just saying we'll give you money and not change your ability to produce. I wanted to make an analogy with other countries that have had usually neo-fascist movements. I would say crypto-fascist movements that use pro-worker language. I think we should remember that during the Spanish Civil War, one of the factions that allied with Franco was the Carlists. The Carlists themselves, like Huey Long's movement, alluded to some form of egalitarianism, but at the same time had a reactionary hostility towards the Republicans, even though in terms of rhetoric they have agreements, but were willing to ally with Franco. So I think that one of the elements of the far right or with crypto-fascist movements as from or literal fascist movements like in Italy, Portugal, and Germany is that they actually have to pull pro-worker. It's essential to the rhetoric because they're pulling their masses for their stormtroopers and brown shirts from the working class. It's an illusion that kind of like the ruling class and the working class on the same side, basically. I think that's what's the big thing about fascism. I think it's really interesting that we're learning about Huey Long and that history, especially about his economic policies and programs, because that's something the bourgeoisie has understood, at least officially, for probably 50 to 70 years now, is that there are certain points when the economy needs an injection of money, to say. Milton Friedman, if you all are familiar with that guy, he was the economist who actually put forward UBI, which was Andrew Yang's economic program just in the recent election, back in the 70s when he was working with Pinochet to set up a fascist dictatorship in Chile. That's always been their means of pacifying the workers in a way. They act like they're on their side. They pay lip service to the workers. Oh, we'll give you a couple crumbs, basically, in the end. No structural changes. It's something that we definitely need to combat. Definitely try to divorce the rhetoric, the populist rhetoric, the economic rhetoric from the cultural reactionary rhetoric that often it's combined with. Because there is a long history in this country going back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution of a sort of progressive populism. You saw that with the miners out in Colorado and whatnot in the early 1900s. So maybe if we can recapture some of that rhetoric, because the Democrats, they're not going to help the working it class. Been 90 they never seconds. have. Before this reading, I didn't know anything about Huey Long, but my impression, what I got at first was, uh, I think the Char Wealth Program proposed by him, it was similar in nature, kind of what I had interpreted by the agenda, kind of like Bernie Sanders. And it seems to be like a useful tool in saving capitalism by releasing the built-up pressure of revolutionary potential and by passing such reforms. Granted, they would increase living standards for some. They're still insufficient in the sense that they aid in preserving 
the very system that created the conditions that require them for their continued existence. So that's what I've taken from it. Thank you. We're going to move on to Section 2 now. So, Comrade from Nevada, you can just go straight through and read Section 2 about the America First Committee. Go ahead, Comrade. Section 2 is an excerpt from History of the Communist Party of the United States by William Z. Foster. The sinister movement comprising the America First Committee was the nearest thing to a general fascist party that the United States has yet had. Its line was the familiar isolationism. Under cover of elaborate peace demagogy, it has cultivated every form of reaction in the United States and gave all possible assistance to the fascist out. The America First Committee was much more definitely fascist than its predecessor, the American Liberty League of the 1936 presidential campaign. The America First Committee was launched on the campus of Yale University, initiated by R. Douglas Stewart, a 24-year-old law student in the spring of 1940. It spread rapidly, being taken over by General Robert E. Wood, head of Sears, Roebuck, and a member of the Chicago Tribune gang. The movement was lavishly financed, having among its many backers Henry Ford, J. Rosenwald, E.P. Weir, Robert M. McCormick, T.M. McCarter, and others. Among the large number of public figures associated with it were Senators Wheeler, Nye, and Lodge. Hugh S. Johnson, Amos Pinocho, and Philip La Follette, Edward Rickenbacker, John T. Flynn, Catherine Lewis, and others. It attracted many muddle-headed liberals, including Chester Bowles, the later head of the Americans for Democratic Action, William H. Hutchinson, first vice president of the AFL, was a member, and Norman Thomas spoke from its platform at a mass meeting in New York in March of 1941. The influence of the Catholic hierarchy was also much in evidence. Every fascist organization in the country was directly or indirectly committed to the committee. Charles A. Lindenberg, the noted aviator whom Roosevelt called a copperhead, was its principal spokesperson. Its headquarters were in Chicago. A subsidy of the American First Community was No Foreign Wars Committee. This outfit was ran by such notorious fascist-like elements as Marilyn K. Hart, Vern Marshall, and G.T. Eggleston. Its special task in the broad American First movement was to propagate a virulent anti-Semitism. The Communist Party made an all-out campaign against the America First Committee and its works. The America First Committee, playing upon intense peace sentiments of its people, mushroomed into national organization claiming 15 million adherents. It had a tremendous propaganda organization, large numbers of neighborhood public headquarters being established in all parts of the country. The aim of the backers of the movement was to crystallize it into a political organization as a reinforcement for the Republican Party. But the vast agitation met a sudden shipwreck after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. In the face of the surging war spirit of the people, the American First Committee was immediately dissolved. That concludes Section 2. I want to clarify for a lot of people what was just read. We were showing how, in the past, the fascist movement in this country operated. It also shows the backers of the fascist movement. One of them was called the America First Committee. And in the America First Committee, the backers were American corporations. They mentioned Sears and Roebuck. Sears today is nothing. But it was, for the last 
I would say since the 50s on, from the 50s to the year 2000, shares was very important in American corporations on Wall Street. It was the place that everybody in the country went to when they wanted to get a washing machine or something. So that's just one of the backers. But also you're going to find out the names you're going to hear like Mellon. Mellon has to do with the banking interest, the Mellon company, the Mellon family. So that's what the person is discussing now, how fascism comes from American corporations, how it's funded in the past. Smedley Butler, what was his deal? Because I read Wars a Racket, and he lists American companies that were profiting off of the war in the Second World War, you know, like factories that were owned by Ford that were protected by the Americans during their bombing runs. So I'm just curious as to how he can be seen as a fascist. So Smedley Butler was involved with the American Liberty League, and that's how he's tied to American fascism, though he did end up resisting it and actually trying to fight it. But it's an example of how finance capital in this country will use veterans like him and those who are charismatic and populist to be the figurehead of the movement because the American Liberty League was funded by figures like J.P. Morgan and all the other robber barons of the times. It was quite literally a coalition of all of the greatest finance capitalists to create the American Liberty League and to overthrow FDR. Thanks, Conrad. I wanted to comment about how misleading these fascist organizations tend to be, like the No Foreign Wars Committee being so involved with anti-Semitism. They do that with laws a lot, too. They'll call it something like cute and patriotic sounding, and then it completely belies what it actually does. And we as communists don't have to do that. We're not ashamed of our views, but these guys are, and that's why they're going to lose. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. Good statement. There's obviously a lot of similarities between the America First Committee and the Trump campaign, but what are the finance capital that's currently backing Trump? Because it seems to me that like Chiquita and Coca-Cola and all these companies that seem to have a lot of push and pull with our foreign policy, they openly came out and said that they were against the violence in Washington, which I suppose doesn't necessarily clear them of any wrongdoing, but are there any good examples of current finance capitalists that are backing Trump? Monopoly capital has always been split. Sometimes during elections, they give money to both parties. Other times, one group of monopoly capitalism will give money to one group. Another group would give it to another group. For example, the Koch brothers, multi-billionaires, gave always money to the Republican Party. There were other groups, other multi-millionaires who gave them to the Democratic Party. And they're fighting each other, but whoever wins, one of the group of monopoly capital wins, and the working class never wins. They always lose. So the answer to this as far as the current thing in January. A piece from Browder that talks about the finance capitalists of the 40s, specifically during the 1944 election. Browder writes that the monopoly capitalists had financed Hitler's rise to power, and these exact same forces were working to elect Thomas Dewey as president in 1944. Dr. Virgil Jordan 
president of the National Industrial Conference Board, known now simply as the Conference Board, was one of the main proponents of the time for the total takeover of monopoly capital in the United States and a global system of finance capital. He believed his man to do the job was Thomas Dewey. But what does this have to do with 2021? Many of the largest corporations associated today with the conference board, like Shell Oil, CVS, and AT&T, have been giving support and funding to Trump. 76 years later, not much has changed. The goals of the conference board, despite its name changes, seems ominously the same as in the days of Virgil Jordan and Thomas Dewey. We also know that many other wealthy elites of the nation, such as Timothy Mellon, CEO of Pan Am, the grandson of former Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, donated $10 million to Trump, and he was not the only person to donate this much. In similar fashion to the conference board, a political PAC known as the America First PAC raised over $6 million for the president's re-election campaign. Betsy DeVos raised a considerable amount of money for the campaign as well, and it should be noted that Hewlett-Packard is part of the conference board as well. As for the attempted coup on January 6th, one of the main groups behind the funding of the protest that sparked the whole event, the Save America protest, is America First Policies. This group, known for being funded by dark money and run by Trump's former administrator of the Small Business Administration, Linda McMahon, America First Policies is as well funded by CVS, Southern Company, and Dow Chemical. Southern Company, it should be added, is yet another corporation that is a member of the conference board. Another group involved was the Tea Party Patriots, which is funded largely in part by billionaire Dick Uline, CEO of the private industrial wholesale group Uline. Other far-right activists, such as conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, sent 80 buses of people to Washington, D.C., as well as the founder of Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, who put up the hotels for the people who would be involved in the coup, and also gave a large amount of donations to fund the Save America protests. We can see what sort of people, those who represent monopoly capital, had a vested interest in this attempted coup. This idea of America first, and also their claim to being opposed to everything foreign in the country, the Chinese who built the railroads, things like that, the America First Committee, before it was a group called the Know Nothing Party. Everybody should know this. That was the name of it, believe it or not. And they had the same principles to put this country first, opposition to any immigrants coming from any part of the world. That's part of this nativism that is predominant in the right, in the areas of the right. The other point I had to make is that Charles Lindbergh, people should know who he was. Charles Lindbergh was the first person white male to go around the globe in an airplane, a small little plane. What's important about him is he gave his full support to the guy with the mustache in Germany, Hitler, 
and he used his position as the first man who went around the world to propagate Hitler and push for Hitler, had a meeting with Hitler in Berlin, was photographed getting a medal from Hitler. So these people have to be looked at as serious. We got to get away from this idea that the capitalists are all the same. Some are worse than others. Hitler was a worse capitalist than the Weimar Republic. That's all. Thank you. First of all, I'm not very aware of that historical phenomenon in American history. The America First Committee, is there any relationship of that committee to the overall philosophy of American exceptionalism? No, no, no connection. No connection. And the second component of the same question is that, is Donald Trump influenced by that committee or the philosophy of that committee? This committee actually dissolved three days after the Pearl Harbor strike in 1941. So it's been extinct for over 50 years now. But it is correct. It is definitely following the America First Committee. That's their slogan of the Trump people. Yes, you're right, comrade. Thank you, comrade. In American history, there's always this sort of American first idea present. There's always been a movement for it at different points in American history. During the 60s, it was the HUIC, the House of Un-American Activities. In the 70s, it was the Klan starting to make a bit of a comeback in these neo-Nazi skinhead groups. In the 80s, it was Ronald Reagan. In the 90s, it was furthered by Clinton. In the 2000s, it was by Bush. And it's just been a rather prevalent in American politics since then. But recently, we have the Trump, for lack of a better word, cultists who are considering a break with the Republican Party to establish a new Patriot Party along the lines of American ultranationalism and this sort of deification of Trump. At least in the way I understand it, like, Donald Trump isn't so much a deviation from the norm of American politics as he is kind of a continuation of a reactionary streak that has existed since the inception of our country. Even the founding fathers, even if we hold them in revere, the main split between the American colonies and the British Empire was the inability to cross over the Appalachians and take more land from the indigenous peoples. Not necessarily a tea tax or what we were taught throughout high schools, like that was one of the primary conflicts. So this like ultra-reactionary sentiment is something that I think has always existed in American politics, and also the Nazis were inspired by our concepts like Manifest Destiny. And Lebensraum was an attempt to bring the American manifest destiny and right to occupy an entire continent to Europe. I find it kind of interesting. I'm starting to notice a pattern whenever I see the term liberty used, generally associated with extremely reactionary and or fascist movements. My question is, it's talking about some liberals here becoming the head of the Americans for Democratic Action. What was that organization? And then my second question is, it says influence of the Catholic hierarchy was also much in evidence. What do they mean by that? I know a lot about ADA. I was a member of ADA. Let me tell you what ADA is. ADA was the liberal attempt to create a mass movement. Up until then, all the mass movements were led by communists. CP communists. I don't mean Trotskyites. I don't mean any other group was led by communists, all the mass movements. The 1950s was the time of the House Un-American Activity Committee 
They called them communist front organizations. Lenin called them transmission belts. Those of you who are in the PCUSA, you know what a transmission belt is. That's what Lenin called for. The ADA, remember now, the time it happened. It happened when the liberals were split in 1947. Remember, up until then, there were two types of liberals. Mainly, we call them New Deal liberals. The New Deal liberals were very close to Roosevelt, very close to the party. The party was in its popular front period. So they walked the same road. That's why they're called fellow travelers. Fellow travelers, because they walked the same road as members of the Communist Party. Social issues against Jim Crow, racism, against fascism. That's what ADA comes out of. 1947, there was a big split. Hubert Humphrey set up an idea that liberals have to now look at communists as the enemies. So the American Civil Liberties Union threw out Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and she had been on the ACLU board. They threw her out. It was the beginnings of separating liberals who were anti-communist from the communists. It was an attempt to destroy, and it succeeded. They attacked the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, and drove out all the communists that built that organization. So they did this through the ACLU, through the CIO, and went as far as to set up their own organization called Americans for Democratic Action. So I had joined it when I was 13 or 14, thinking it was a communist front organization, but it wasn't. That's all. I hope I gave clarification. I was really interested in what Angelo said, so I kind of got lost in what I was going to say. We're recovering again real quick so I can rehab. America First Committee? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wouldn't one argue that that was more of a mass movement by fascists? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it was. You're correct. Yeah. You're and correct, Thomas. anti-war rhetoric to pull over working class, predominantly white working class Americans. But I do remember that the CP was the third or fourth largest party in America then. And there was, like an or- there was a mass organization that they had. I forgot the name. But it was very popular. They had also mass organizations for different groups, like the African Blood Brotherhood. It's kind of like an old, old organization from the 20s. It's where Harry Haywood came from. And I think that those organizations are something we can model after. Like the Green Party, for example, would be a great party for, let's say, a Marxist-Leninist to take part in, in a large popular front. Because I know there was this Catholic fascist priest Charles Coughlin, and him and another party would have made up a large total block, but they had different opinions. But I think that's what America kind of needs right now. I think a popular front with Green parties and, like, ML parties would be, like, the best thing for America. Not at a nationwide level, but, like, at a state level. When these people said that they were anti-war, that's because they were in favor of the Nazis. Am I misunderstanding that? That's because if they wanted Hitler to continue to carry out the policy. You're correct, comrade. You're correct entirely. The comments that are made tonight are very astute. Yes, they were supporting the Nazis, and the government was not supporting the Nazis, so they were anti-war. Yeah. I appreciate that answer. Comrade, you can go ahead and go right into Section 3. Go ahead, comrade. 
Section 3 is an article on finance capital involvement in the January 6th coup attempt. More than 20 far-right groups and individuals received more than $500,000 in Bitcoin payments ahead of last week's riots at Capitol Hill, in which five people were killed, research showed today. The revelation has fueled speculation that the storming of U.S. federal legislature may have been pre-planned, since this massive payment was made into 22 virtual wallets about a month before. According to a blog post by cryptocurrency monitoring group Chain Analysis, the payments of 28.15 bitcoins was made by a French donor on December 8th in one single transaction. Chain Analysis's investigation revealed that far-right groups and individuals, including Nick Fouin, who was central to the Capitol Hill protest, were the main beneficiaries of the bumper payment, receiving large bitcoin donations. We have also gathered evidence that strongly suggests that the donor was a now-deceased computer programmer based in France, China Analysis said in its report. The donation, as well as the reports of the planning that went into the capital raid on alt-right communication channels, also suggest that the domestic extremist groups may be better organized and funded than previously thought, the blog post continues. Mr. Fouin, a white nationalist, was the biggest recipient of the Bitcoin payments, according to a chain analysis investigation. Nick received 13.5 Bitcoin, worth approximately $250,000 at the time of the transfer, making him by far the largest beneficiary of the donation. However, several others received significant funds as well, including anti-immigration organizer VDAR, alt-right streamer Ethan Ralph, and several addresses whose owners were as of yet unidentified, it said. Mr. Foix, who describes himself as an American nationalist and paleoconservative, was permanently banned from YouTube in February of last year for hate speech directed at progressive congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. He was seen posing with a megaphone on the steps of Capitol Hill as supporters of President Donald Trump gathered in response to claims that last November's presidential election was, quote, stolen. While he has denied entry to the building, Mr. Fouat organized his audience in the days leading up to the protest to engage in extreme behavior to prevent President-elect Joe Biden's victory from being certified. This included hinting that his supporters, quote, should kill state legislators. In a broadcast streamed on DL Live on January 4th and seen by Morningstar, he said, quote, what can you do and I do to a state legislature besides kill him, before adding, we should not do that, and I'm not advising that, but, I mean, what else can you do, right? Police and state officials allowed protesters easy access to the floor of Congress and other rooms in the building, where property was damaged and five people died, four supporters of Mr. Trump and one police officer. The riots have been widely described as a fascist coup, with hyperbole reaching a peak when it was compared to the September 11, 2001 attacks in which more than 3,000 people died after hijacked planes flew into the World Trade Center. People might know this person better as Nick Fuentes. I don't know if that name rings a better bell for some of the people on this phone call. I was just clarifying. Most people are not talking about this. It's important that we bring it up here. The U.S. Peace Council, their statement was really horrid. It said it was not a coup. It was a riot. And I find that problematic when you have all these right-wing forces financially working together, supporting not only with money, but with their cell phones and their internet connections to call it a riot. 
that's really saying that there's no fascist threat to this country. And that's the analysis of the people who wrote that statement. Really, really dangerous. Because it's not alerting us to what fascism is and how strong it is. So any questions on what was just read from the communist newspaper, The Morning Star? So this was definitely a coup, and we're seeing more and more about how well-funded and organized these fascists were. And they got in, but it really failed rather miserably. They didn't get much done that they wanted to do. And I thought that they're as stupid as they are funded and brash and brazen about what they're doing. Is it safe to say that they are a bunch of very, very bad coup attempters with a lot of powerful people backing them? The threat is there in the organization, but it seems to me that they're, fortunately for everyone, very, very bad at actually pulling things off that they have a lot of support for. Anybody Uh, want to answer that? Well, my opinion of it is that there seems to be a lot of money that's just floating around that a lot of people have accumulated through no real means of their own just by gaming the system, essentially. And what my opinion is is that these people don't really know what to do with it. They're just spending it, and they're spending it on getting, like, cheap thrills, like storming the Capitol building. I don't think Trump really expected that to happen. I don't know what he would have done if it had succeeded. Well, he probably would have taken the bull by the so to speak, but I think there's just a lot of irresponsible people. I think it was much more than that. It could easily have been a first attempt, and I think that's what it was. A first attempt. They didn't plan it outright, as you were saying. But the people that were behind them knew what they were doing. Trump knew what he was doing. His words were deliberately chosen. Every word that comes out of his mouth is deliberately chosen. The first thing he said after it was happening is that these are good people. I love you, he tells them on the TV. I love you. You're my people. He knew what he was doing. He knew what words he was using. He was hoping that it could happen. It didn't happen. That's my analysis of that. That because it fails doesn't mean that they were not ready for a second time to come around with guns. Most of them did not have guns ready to use. It was a surprise to them that they got in that far. And that's all I could say to that. It seems that these fascists are very well organized and have a lot of financing behind them. I am not aware of what kind of financial instruments we have at our hands to wield. We're not ready for this. Lenin said we cannot win every battle. We have to win the war. And there were many battles in the war. We have to choose the ones we're going to fight in and choose the ones we're going to not fight in. Otherwise, if we fight in the wrong battle and we lose, that will help us get to a point where we will lose the war. And it's the war, which is to us the revolution, that we really want to win. We're a new party. People have to understand that. I don't know if people realize that. The Party of Communists, USA, is the only party that's educating their rank and file into what is going on. To use the term by Marx, look at the world as it is, not as we want the world to be. And many people on the left, you all know that, look at the world as they want it to be, not the way it is. So we have to continue to bid our time 
That's all I can say to that. Anybody else want to answer that? I agree with everything that Comrade Angelo says, but I also think that the comrade who asked the question is looking at it in slightly a different way than what we should be, because they asked, how do we combat this financially? Do we have those financial terms? And that's not what we do as communists. We have manpower to combat this. We don't have financial power. We obviously aren't getting this from corporations. They have corporations, and you see what they bought. They bought a mob. And we fight this not with a mob, but with well-trained comrades that are disciplined and can withstand the trials that this, as Angelo says, is war. So we will come at this with trained comrades, and the capitalists will come at us with a mob. And that's what their money buys. And that's how we need to see it. Thank you. My understanding from Section 3, what appears to be the case is that these fascist movements are funded heavily by finance capital. And they appeal to the disenfranchised members of the proletariat who lack class consciousness. And they attempt to do this through reformist methods without necessarily changing the relations or the modes of production. So I wanted to ask, how do we as class conscious members of the communist movement, how do we necessarily reach out to other members of the proletariat and inform them of the wider movement? How do we engage in reinforcing class solidarity as individuals in our own day-to-day lives? I would say that we must keep in mind that, especially in this digital age, we think of ourselves as actors in that digital space, but reaching out to the proletariat we have to go and meet them physically. Like, where are our workplaces? Where are our local communities? How can we literally talk to people and reach out to them? And I think that's where our cadre of comrades can really excel. And I feel that we have to go and find people in real space, whereas many other political parties and movements are trying to operate in the digital space. I think that's that's absolutely something that we need to do. And I think not only do we need to meet them where they're at, but also how they're at, is go and talk to them, talk to the people around you, the workers, the proletariat that you're near, and see what are their issues? What are they angry about or frustrated about? What is going on in their lives? And you need to tackle those and understand and sympathize with what's happening with them. And you can then help, as a class-conscious member of society, you can help guide them and kind of nudge them into class consciousness. So like what I'm doing with my workplace is we have a lot of issues in our workplace and I'm starting to organize and say, hey, you know what, why don't we come together and talk to our boss together? Why don't we do this together? And that's starting to open up some eyes, starting to show them how we can work together as a group to do that. Now, they're not fully aware and class conscious and everything, but they're starting. And that's what we need to do as communists. Thank you. I want to add to that. The working class in the 1930s, because of the CIO drive, Congress of Industrial Organizations, led by the communists, basically, the working class was organized into unions. Today, the percentage that are members of unions are the lowest it's ever been. I think it's something like 8%. Maybe I'm wrong. I remember when I got involved with the movement, When I was 13 years old, 1961, it was 13%. So from 1961 to now, look how much we dropped. Of course, that's 50 years, almost 50 years. We dropped an awful lot. So the point is, if we use the Internet as a way to talk to people using 
the understanding of class without even mentioning class. What do we have in common with the wealthy Americans? What do we have in common with them? Something like that. Through the Internet, we could build class consciousness and funnel them into an understanding that we have nothing in common with the wealthy millionaires and billionaires. Nothing. I think many people can relate to that. If we could get them first to that point where they see we have nothing in common with them. So what do we have in common with each other? As people that are wage earners, what do we have in common? And if we could start talking about the similarities that we have more in common with each other as wage earners, we don't have to use the word working class. Use the word wage earners because that's what wage earners are. Now, remember, Lenin used the word proletariat because a proletariat meant factory workers. That's what the definition of proletariat is, by the way. People think it's synonymous with the working class, but it's not. In this society, the factory workers are very small, and that's what I would suggest. We use the Internet and do as Comrade was even mentioning. What are some historical ways and techniques that, for example, like the Bolsheviks or whomever other socialist movements historically have done that have worked and also contemporary ways to organize people. How does someone like me go to a kind of alien workforce, something that I'm not a part of, and I kind of start talking them up about unionizing or building class consciousness? How would we be able to do that? What I found is that What doesn't work is going up to people and telling them about socialism and telling them about communism as an introduction. I found that that doesn't work. What does work is that when people profess the issues that they have, and we all have plenty of issues at work, whether they can be sort of analyzed in a class context or whether they're just petty, minor occurrences in a workplace, as coworkers and as peers of these people who we work with, our fellow people in the proletariat, It's our job to identify where they're at, meet them where they're at, and then, based on what they already have, work from there, as opposed to trying to be some sort of, to use the wrong term, like an alien or an interfering force. The point is to be one with the workers. The Trotskyists go around preaching everyone on their pedestals and yelling about socialism to people, and that's not what we do as Marxist-Leninists. I don't know if anyone disagrees with me, but that's my opinion. I want to add to that, let's differentiate and separate Mao from the Maoist. They're two different animals. Mao did exactly what said in the 1920s and in the 30s, up even during the 40s. The famous quote, be among the fishes, that's what that's all about. Maoists don't do that today. They go on intellectual communities on the Internet and talk about class war, talk about revolution, overthrow, And that's why they're not going anywhere. I wanted to quickly discuss about the fact that recently I read the piece on Red Patriot, that is redpat.org, about applying Dimitrov's United Front in today's conditions and the necessity of combating fascism. I also recommend people look at the United Front on the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies that is a wonderful series that elaborates on Georgi Dimitrov's work. Thank you, comrade. 
the topic earlier in regards to the money that the fascist movement has accumulated for itself. While there is a large portion of middle class and petty bourgeois members among the fascist movement, including people who are lawyers and people who are off-duty officers or business owners, there is also something we also have to acknowledge, which is there is multimillionaires that is involved with the fascist movement. I think there's also probably a couple billionaires. Richard Spencer, a few years back, when he was extremely popular, his organization, the National Policy Institute, had a very wealthy financial member who was pretty much funneling all of the money he possibly could to putting Richard Spencer's views out onto the mainstream. And he pretty much financed all of his travel trips and everything. He has since then to now become incredibly unpopular among his own base. And now somebody else has taken a step called Nick Fuentes, who is probably the most popular fascist member of the movement today, next to Trump. This man has got the same level of financial backing as Richard Spencer, where he's going traveling across the country, getting a name for himself, getting a recognition for himself. It the fascist movement doesn't have just an accumulation of wealth from their own selves. They're also getting financed by the biggest members of the capitalist forces. So in today's version of the America First movement, there's several organizations that can be called part of the America First movement. The financial laws that are used can kind of obscure where the money is coming from with these organizations, but there's America First Action, there's America First, and then there's America First Policy, and then there's Women for America First, who is the organization that organized the January 6th coup. And it derives funding from America First Policies, though the America First Policies does not disclose who its donors are or who it donates money to. So it's a bit difficult to actually find out who, but America First Policies derives almost 60% of its donations from finance capital, explicitly from investments from large tech companies, from large businesses, and through wealthy individuals. It derived almost 160-something million dollars just last year for campaign funding for Donald Trump's re-election campaign. And then there's also some speculation on the chair of the first policies who was quoted as saying that he wished Trump was more of a fascist. But that's all I had to say. So are we talking about people such as like Black Rifle Coffee and the My Pillow dude kind of funneling in these funds to essentially support people like Kyle Rittenhouse or extreme right wing groups? You are correct. That's correct. I just wanted to make sure I was following. Donations like this often really reveal that these movements masquerade themselves as being mass working class movements, but really reveal that all they're doing is trying to undermine class analysis and create this sort of false sense of class, right, where you can call anyone working class. People say that Donald Trump is a hero of the working man on that sort of right wing spectrum. And these donations just show that that does not match up at all. Nobody who's working class has $250,000 to send to get people to go to the Capitol. 
I think that, that obfuscating factor is really one of the most powerful tools that that right-wing type of movement uses. I don't know if anyone caught this, but it says, uh, according to the blog post moderating this place that tracks these donations, the largest payment was made by a donor on December 8th. And for those not familiar with why December 8th is an important date, in the United States, December 8th is what is called the safe harbor deadline. And this is the date in which results from the Electoral College have to be understood as certified, which were all things such as recounts and audits. That's the date where they're supposed to be completed. So again, there's no direct evidence that matches these two things, but I don't think it's just a coincidence that on December 8th, the largest payment was made. And that's the day that the Electoral College results were certified. There's a lot of stuff that we just reprinted. It came from the printer today. I wanted to share with everybody here. I think they would like to hear this. People should write this down. This is a pamphlet, a brochure. It was done in 1946. Very interesting. It's called Who Owns America by James S. Allen. That's one. The next one. This one is by Benjamin Davis. People should know he was the communist councilman in New York City Council. And this was written in 1963. It's called Must Negro Americans Wait Another Hundred Years for Freedom Against Tokenism and Gradualism. Very interesting. The next one is fascinating. It was done during the Spanish Civil War. It's called Trotskyism in the service of Franco. Franco was the fascist who took over the country. Trotskyism in the service of Franco. The author is George Soria, S-O-R-I-A. It's a documentary record of treachery of the Pum, P-O-U-M. Those are the Trotskyites in Spain. Next one, some of us use it in our class, the meaning of social fascism. It's historical and theoretical background by Earl Browder, and that was written in the 30s. And really interesting. It's called Women Against Myth, M-Y-T-H, by Betty Millard, M-I-L-L-A-R-D. Excellent Marxist analysis written in 1948. And the last one is something that you need to get written by William Z. Forster. It's called The Crisis in the Socialist Party. And that was written in 1936. The Crisis in the Socialist Party. Excellent detailed analysis by comrade William Z. Forster. And what's fascinating about it is... If you take away the word socialist and put Communist Party USA, you'll be shocked. It's identical. His criticism of what happened to the Socialist Party is identical if we analyze what had happened to the old Communist Party. That's all. Thank you. This is my first session. It is comforting to hear these conversations being had. I find in my own setting, there's an entirely different way of conversation that seems to understand this as anomalous, accidental, and Trump is incompetent. So to hear this being taken seriously is comforting to me. Thank you all. When we were talking about how capital, particularly financial institutions, tend to align themselves with fascist movements, 
I think it's also important to understand how the financial institutions, they'll switch sides once the fascist takes power. You can see this in Germany, how Hitler consolidated his power with crops at the arms manufacturing companies and all that kind of stuff, and the Volkswagen and the car manufacturing companies. It also works both ways. Gerber is actually, the company that still exists, is the same company. They manufactured Zyklon B, which was used in the Holocaust. They don't poo-poo fascism either way. It's been a fantastic class tonight. The readings were excellent. Going from highlighting Huey Long, who has been rewritten in history textbooks as a more progressive, liberal, whatever they want to try to claim that he is a more lefty version of FDR or something, to the important fact that fascists don't have the support of the masses as a whole. We've seen that from the reaction to the events on January 6th. We haven't seen a mass movement in support behind it, but they have the support of those in higher places. They always have the support of the wealthy, who always have enough money to bet on whichever horse wants to win. So for now, they feel like our bourgeois democratic system would work, but they may decide that that would change later. And that's what we have to worry about and work against is and why we have to defend bourgeois democracy at the moment is the rich were always willing to take it away from us. So we have to defend it and then to push for our ultimate goal. So thank you, everyone. I want to draw attention to the same fundamental conditions that gave rise to the America First Committee and the same sentiments, the national chauvinist sentiments that gave impetus to its growth during the 40s and the same sentiments that are behind the America First movement today and especially the finance capital investments and funding behind these groups which have figureheads that do not appear to be these type of finance capitalists but when you look into their funding and to who are all involved in them, they are the finance capitalists, especially since for the America First Action, which is probably the parent organization that is funding most of these America First groups, about 60% of its funding, which you can find through public records, comes from finance capital, almost explicitly from finance investments, major businesses, large tech companies. So it's very clear the type of American fascism that we're facing here when the same characteristics apply to both. The takeaway I got was that with this Bitcoin thing, the elections for the two senators in Georgia showed that money can only do so much. And that would be, I think, a wrong focus to work on. And that was basically said among others. We need to concentrate on getting the means to get the word out, the focus on class awareness. People are mentioning feet on the ground. It's not just the workers. I think that's great. Angela had mentioned that campuses and campus bookstores used to be where we did most of our recruiting. I also agree, like people say, face-to-face, -face, hand someone a paper. We're talking about newsletters. That is something that is totally neglected in our, in quotes, virtual reality. There's the other thing. The political sphere, there is means to do an outreach there. Each one of us are constituents. You have representatives. 
There's virtual town halls, there's letters, there's the internet. We need to put these people when they have a subject, why are they not doing this? They, I mean, we have so many subjects that we try to cover. We also have to create a network with our newspapers and our reporters. Great class. I would like to make another recommendation, and that is Michael Parenti's Black Shirts and Reds. It discusses very much the collaboration of the reactionary finance capital and fascism. I'd also like to make point that the rise of fascists under Obama's term has been quite notable, and that is through crypto-fascism, fascists who hide their fascist beliefs in private and don't point it out publicly. I guess I'm just learning because I feel like I have a very different definition of fascism and how it pertains to people. I feel like fascism comes from a position of power in government, and I'm not really sure I understand how that whole scope of political maneuvering, I guess I'm not quite there yet, so I want to thank comrades for being patient with me. I can kind of add on to that. We did some classes on the United Front a while ago, and it talks about exactly what your question is and the definition of fascism, and I think what you're alluding to, correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea that fascism is above a class character and that it comes from this obscure idealistic concept of power as opposed to emerging from a class relationship. And so it's been iterated in classes before that fascism, the economic relations of production for fascism go no further than the bounds of capitalism. It's just that the character of the state goes from what we consider the velvet glove to the iron fist as opposed to fascism existing above the state as an idealistic concept. That's what they would have us in the West believe, especially in contemporary American academia. But Dimitrov and Stalin had a very different understanding of what fascism was. But I hope that gives you a little more understanding of what your question was. In the 1930s, the early 1930s, they were having an election in 32 in Germany. And there was a famous poster, picture of Hitler facing the crowd. And the slogan said, Everybody said there were millions of German people behind Hitler, the slogan by the German Communist Party, the KPD, the Communist Party of Germany. That's what the term was at the time. They said it very clear. There are millions behind Hitler. And then it said millions of German marks, M-A-R-K-S. That's the money. And it showed you all the money behind Hitler. And they cannot go anywhere without money. If they didn't have that money that was given to them on January 6th, they would have never got there. They could never have gotten to Washington. They got there because they were financed by money. So without the money, they're not going to go anywhere. So fascism cannot succeed without capitalist money behind it. And that's all I want to say. Thank you. A lot of the companies that backed Nazi Germany or profited off of the rise of fascism in Germany still exist today. You can Google a list of companies involved in the Holocaust. It's a pretty long list of companies that service consumers across the world today. Just something to think about. I think that there is this constant reminder that Biden is getting kind of idolized right now, especially by the left and by socialists and there's a constant reminder there that you have to remind yourself that he's still getting paid by somebody. So I do like the fact that we're bringing up 
donations in Washington to specific groups? So we spoke a little bit earlier in the class about how a lot of American fascists had high regard for the Nazis. And I was wondering, since these imperial powers are supposed to be essentially competing with each other, how do we explain the unity that often emerges between places like Mussolini's Italy, Hitler's Germany, and uh, fascist movements in the United States? They're organized. They are organized. They are acting the way we acted in the 30s and 40s before they got rid of the Comintern. They would meet. They would strategize. Think of tactics that they can use in different parts of the world, whether Italy, France, the United States, England. Every one of these countries are represented at their meetings. In fact, Putin, believe it or not, was one of the first organizers of this far-right meeting. And so people on the left who think Putin is some kind of a Stalin reincarnated, they're insane. He's nothing compared to Comrade Stalin. Putin is a capitalist making profits, simple, but that's why they're organized. We need, on our side of the fence, we need to start unifying in action with other left groups that we can, also understanding groups that are not with us. I warn everyone now again, Antifa, beware of Antifa. They are not part of our movement. PSL, Workers' World, even DSA to an extent, are closer to us than Antifa. I just want to give that warning. But they're organized, the right. They have annual meetings, semi-annual meetings. We don't do that. Thank you. I hope I answered some of that question. What Angelo said, I think everything he said was true. And I'm glad that, as a fellow comrade, someone on the left can see that Antifa is, in principle, good, but in praxis, more adventurous than practical for the left to defend itself and to defend vulnerable communities from fascism and from capitalism in general in its various forms, whether it's to the left of center neoliberalism or to the right with literal fascism. We have to build alliances with smaller Marxist-Leninist parties, but also with larger socialist movements. I think a Green Party would be great allies, the Sunrise Movement. We very much can use this for our potential right now, because a lot of people are now looking towards socialism more than ever. Forty percent of young adults have a positive opinion of socialism, at least according to Pew Research. And I say this, this is the most interesting thing. It made my heart warm a little bit when I read this. Both Pew Research and Ren Musen report, which if anyone knows the historically conservative polling agency, they show that between 13 to 19 percent of Americans have an objectively positive or supportive opinion towards communism. So this is the time. And think about what 19% of the population looks like. That's tens of millions of people. So I think it's a good time right now to take this polarized time and to show that we as Marxist-Leninists, the true representatives of the left and of working class movement, we need to use it now to make faces. So among all our members, our understanding of socialism must be that articulated by Lenin, defined and limited by Lenin, and it should be the eventual dictatorship of the proletariat here in the United States and globally. So it right. must be quantified. 
I just want to ask about Huey Long. What's anyone's opinion about Comrades kind of, not necessarily seeing him in the same light that we talked about him tonight, but looking at him in admiration? What would you say to that? I think we have to be clear what we're about. Comrade made it clear when he gave his comment. We are a vanguard party. We follow Comrade Lenin. He successfully led, with others, a successful socialist revolution in Russia. That's what we are following. Anyone who's short of that, anyone who's short of that, will never attribute and succeed in building any kind of a successful socialist movement in this country. So how do we look at Huey Long? It should be obvious. We see him as a con artist, very clearly a con artist, a huckster, very similar, if not identical, to Trump, another con artist, who's only interested in building around himself a movement that would put him up as a god. That's the way, historically, we should see Huey Long. That's my interpretation as a Marxist-Leninist. Thank you. I just wanted to express appreciation for the clarification of Antifa, because I have some friends that are involved with it, and I had to separate myself from them because I just felt as though it's not helping build socialism at all. If anything, it's destructive and it's unattractive. It's not what we stand for. It's not what it is. I wanted to say that. Thank you. Something Angel said earlier when he was talking about the mass organizations, where communists were the ones who led them, one of the things he mentioned there was no Trotskyists uh, who were doing that, or not to any mentionable degree at least. And the thing that we see here with Huey Long, people who support Trump, the ADA, and also with Trotsky, is that this is all forms of class collaboration. These leaders are trying to get the workers to align themselves with the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, on universal terms, on freedom and liberty, things that nobody really is against in principle, but without any of the nuance of a class analysis. So I thought it was interesting that we're talking about fascism and the class collaboration is an essential point here. When the kulaks were beginning to try and sabotage agriculture in the Soviet Union in anticipation of the forced collectivization, Trotsky, in his action, wanted to, instead of doing the forced collectivization, or rather recollectivization, because it had already been collectivized underneath the petty bourgeois class, wanted to give a progressive tax rate instead of actually doing something for the working class. And that's all. Thanks. A comrade who was talking about that socialism gets perceived positively by X percent of people. I would maybe express a little caution with that. I think that we still have a lot of work to do, especially when it comes to what type of socialism people refer to. I still think there is this knee-jerk reaction based on decades and decades of propaganda towards Marxism-Leninism. And I know from my own experience that Bernie Sanders' version of socialism is very popular, but people try very hard to contrast that to the evils of communism. This is people ostensibly on the left. They still have this knee-jerk reaction indoctrinated into them about what actual existing socialism countries were, but I don't think that you made an incorrect assessment, but it's that it's much easier to convince people and to bring people to our side if even that base, if even that starting point is 
an acceptance of socialism, even if it's not the socialism that when we hear the word socialism, even if it's not what we're thinking about, it's much easier to engage people and win these people over to our side if their starting point is already something that we're familiar with and we can engage in. Does anyone want to comment on that? Am I off base or is that what we were thinking? I think you're very much on the ball with that, where the first hurdle for us in America is historical McCarthyism. And whether or not we come out and we have the right ideas and everything, we have to get past that base fear that has been instilled in us since basically birth. We grow up learning about the evils of socialism, the evils of communism. And as soon as we start going anywhere near that, we have to battle against that. So anything, anything that helps us get past that first hurdle makes it easier in the long run. I think it's interesting how the bourgeoisie nullifies revolutionary sentiment among the population by basically playing both sides, playing both the left and the right. The Bernie Sanders, Yang-type politics on the left, and then you got the Trump-type politics on the right. They're both false, illusory types of revolutionary politics. It only has the veil of that, as we understand as communists. I also wanted to mention that the people who are organizing this, especially on the right, people like Steve Bannon, who were recently pardoned by the president, who made all their money on Wall Street, and finance capital for the past 30 or 40 years is basically all tech-based. It's all financial transactions done by computers. So finance capital and IT are basically in bed with one another, and I don't think there's any other greater example than Cambridge Analytica, that whole scandal that happened a couple of years ago, all funded by finance capital, all meant to manipulate the population, get them to vote for Trump and whatnot. But I just wanted to add that. During the class, it immediately brought to mind, there's a Woody Guthrie song about Lindbergh, and it literally talks about Lindbergh, America first. And he literally says in the song, they say America first, but they mean America next. If anybody hasn't listened to it, it's very topical for the class. Comrades, I want to just tie up all the loose ends that was mentioned tonight. Very interesting. First of all, you know how many people have come to us because of 2016 Bernie Sanders? I would say easily 70%. 70% have come to us because Bernie opened their eyes. Very interesting. Hitler called his group National Socialism. It was not National Socialism. It was Fascism. But he used the term National Socialism. Sanders used the term Socialism. He even used the term, to be more precise, Democratic Socialism. That's what he called it. It was not Socialism. It's nothing more than a welfare state like they had in the Scandinavian countries. The word socialism has been, for a long time, negative. Trump, at the end, before the elections, before the votes, came out with an attack against Biden and Kamala Harris. And you know what he called them? Socialist and communist. What a joke. He called them socialist and communist. So he was using what we call the red herring card, the anti-communist card, that's what he was doing. So that word still is a very negative thing in our society. So for people to start looking at it positively, as Comrade said, is really correct. That's important. So Bernie served his purpose. 
We don't really care about Bernie. I mean, I don't anyway. I can't speak for other people. But he did help us initially. The next thing, Earl Browder, the famous quote, communism is 20th century Americanism. Remember that quote. Communism is 20th century Americanism. So he connects the term Americanism with communism. That is a positive thing in my understanding. Because most people are not coming from a class-conscious point of view. It has been destroyed in this country. Our job is to resurrect class consciousness so that people know what side they're on. But we should also use the tool of patriotism, that we are the ones who are the patriots. Distinguish and separate patriotism from nationalism. We are not nationalists, but we are patriots. There's a big difference. For most of our country's existence, from the 1850s onward, when they built the railroads, everybody knew that the enemy was what we call the robber baron. Robber baron, just by the term alone. These are baron, they think that their crap don't stink, and they got to their point in life by walking off the bodies of working people. And they were robbers. And that's why we called them robber barons. But we always knew the enemy was Wall Street. When was the last time you heard Wall Street put in a negative way? I haven't heard it in my lifetime. The left dropped it. For whatever reason, they dropped it. We don't talk about Wall Street. We think Wall Street is a nice thing, the stock market, it goes up and down. No, no. I suggest you get the book written by a communist, The Enemy Forgotten, by Gilbert Green. He was a member of the YCL on the Central Committee of the Old Party, the Young Communist League. He volunteered and went to Spain in 1930s to fight fascism in Spain. So this is a guy who's devoted his whole life to fighting fascism. I found the book fascinating. I used it for my master's when I was in college. The information that was in there, I want to give a plug for Comrade Gil Green, in which he says, we forget that in our history, the enemy was always Wall Street, and now we're not talking about it. We have to bring that back. Wall Street is the enemy of the people of this country. Now, put on your targets a corporation called My Pillow. You must have seen the ads on TV. And it's a friendly-looking guy talking about resting and sleeping, putting your head on his pillow, and you could have a good night's sleep. Well, let's look behind the headlines. My Pillow guy was at the White House the morning that this happened and went to Trump and told Trump, we need to call martial law and put down and overtake the Congress. That was this guy, my pillow. He's now being put on a issue that he can be arrested for inciting to riot for martial law, insurrection. I think that people on the left should start responding to his ads and tell everybody what he is. And as far as tonight's class, that's it. We want to thank everybody for coming to the class. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you, comrades. Good night.